Hello, my little elves. Tis I, Santa. And it is This Week in Mormons. Thanks for taking the time to tune in this week. And because this week is Christmas, we're right upon it, we wanted to mix things up a little bit. So what follows in this special episode are small Christmas anecdotes from the various co-hosts of This Week in Mormons. Some of the stories are humorous. Some of the stories are tearjerkers. Some are touching, some are spiritual, some are secular. But what's great is we see the common threads of the Christmas season through different lenses, through different hosts. Uh, I want to take this time up front to thank everyone who participated. And to get things kicked off, we're going to hand it over to our very own Tiffany Hales of the Twin Sisters, who has a story about how she eventually got the best of her mother during Christmas. Now, you may think the game of Survivor was invented by Mark Burnett and made famous by CBS and its host, Jeff Prost, but you would be incorrect. The game of Survivor was invented by me and my mother. During my entire childhood, Christmas was a dance my mother and I played to see who could outwit, outplay, outlast. My mother never wanted anybody to know what they were getting for Christmas. She was famous for wrapping small items in big boxes with extra heavy items like bags of beans or towels to throw you off when you were trying to guess the gift, and you always had to guess the gift before opening it. So it became a game between me and my mother for her to outwit my guessing skills. Now, my guessing skills became finely tuned and quite adept at a very early age. I would scour the house for all the hiding places for presents until my parents got smart and started keeping the presents at my dad's business. I would dig through the trash for receipts. I would look in the trash for bags from stores. I would even go into my mother's sewing room and dig through the fabric scraps in her trash to figure out what she might be making me. I would eavesdrop on conversations, and I would unwrap and rewrap a present, and you couldn't even tell. I was obnoxious, and I'm pretty sure I drove my mother to the brink of Christmas insanity. Now, Christmas 1975 was a particularly memorable one in our game of Survivor. I was eight years old. The rule in my family was you could not have a Barbie and her accompanying accessories until you were eight years old. I turned eight about a month before Christmas and received my first Barbie. So, of course, for Christmas, I wanted all of Barbie's accessories, specifically the carrying case with the fold-down bed and her country camper. I had picked them out of the Sears catalog. As usual, I could not sleep on Christmas Eve with the excitement of Christmas and my anticipated new Barbie toys. Now, sleeping on Christmas Eve or rather not sleeping on Christmas Eve, was normal and again part of the game of Survivor that my mom and I would play. I would always be sent to bed about 10 p.m., I would struggle to fall asleep, and I'd usually wake up somewhere between 3 and 4 a.m., which was generally shortly after my mother went to bed. We would then spend the next four hours with my parents yelling at me to get back in bed and threatening to take away my Christmas presents if I didn't. I got really good at being as quiet as a church mouse. Now, on that December day in 1975, I woke up probably around four in the morning. I quietly opened the door to my room, which was only about three feet from my parents' bedroom, and their door was open. As I entered the hallway, I was confronted with string. Now, this string was strung across the hallway, through door handles, through cupboards. It was at various varying heights all throughout the hallway. It was like a maze to get through and around the string. So my first thought when I saw the string was, this was an ingenious plan by my parents to keep and trap me in my room. But I was not about to be deterred by a little string. I carefully made my way over and around and through the string to the living room, only to be confronted with more string. It was everywhere, running through the kitchen, the dining room, and all throughout the first floor of our house at various various heights and around things. I made my way to the Christmas tree and began to investigate. I found the end of the very long string strung throughout my house, wrapped into a box with a Christmas bow addressed to me. 
I realized then the string was a clue to one of my presents and I would have to wind the string into a ball to get to my present. I began quietly following the string until I realized the end of the, the other end of the string led into my parents' bedroom. Now, not wanting to risk the wrath of my mother and waking her up, I returned to bed. A few hours later, my parents allowed us kids to get up and I pretended to be oh so surprised by the string everywhere. Now, the other rule in our house was there would be no opening of presents until everyone was dressed and ready for the day, including shower, hair, and makeup for my mother. As a child, this was absolutely pure torture. So what did I do during this time while my mother was getting ready? I kept following the string. And when she left her bedroom to go to the kitchen to get breakfast, I found the end of that string leading to a cupboard underneath her sink. I opened the cupboard to find a wrapped box and one whiff of that box and I could smell the distinct smell of Barbie plastic and I knew it was the country camper. The biggest smile swept over my face and I was giddy with excitement. Alas, I had outwitted, outplayed, and outlasted my mother in our game of Survivor. Tiffany Hales, surprising none of us with her ability to incorporate reality television into a Christmas story. Next, Devin Thorpe explains to us how an experience of his youth showed him how the materialism of Christmas is what matters the least. My father was well-educated and well-employed as I grew up with what ultimately reached a total of five siblings. But there were a few lean years. As Christmas approached one year, my parents began encouraging us to think about how well-off we were relative to others. They told us stories of pioneer Christmas celebrations, one of which included the highlight of a tin cup for each child in the family. In every way possible, they prepared us for a modest celebration. While I think they hoped for us to be touched by the lesson of that modest Christmas that did, in fact, include a tin cup for each of us, I remember simply being mildly disappointed, a feeling that didn't last past pancakes. The next year was a better one for Dad, as I recall, Dad resolved some real estate woes and felt better about his career than ever in his life. He was earning a good salary at a job he truly loved. If memory serves, that was the most bountiful Christmas of my pre-adult life. Never before and never again would there be such a celebration in the Thorpe home. There was a veritable mountain of presents for each of us. Mom and Dad must have been up all night wrapping and organizing. We were ecstatic with Christmas, consistent with the rules in our home of opening one present at a time so everyone could ooh and ah over every gift. The unwrapping went on for hours. The entire living room was waist deep in wrapping paper. There was no way in or out without wading through the detritus of the biggest Christmas haul ever. As we neared the end of the unwrapping, the phone rang, violating the unspoken and universally understood rule of the holiday at the time that no phone calls should be made before noon. The caller was my dad's friend, Lynn, who worked at LDS Hospital, where my dad worked. Lynn was special. He had a developmental disability that, that prevented him from learning to read, but he knew numbers, and so he loved to listen to the radio. Well, he loved the radio and changing the stations because each one had a number and the numbers made sense to him. He loved buses for the same reason. They all had numbers and he memorized where each number went. Lynn has a defining quality. When you meet him, he will ask first for a hug and when he gets it, he'll ask you to pat his head. I still see Lynn from time to time and he still wants a hug and to have me pat his head. Even then, as a relatively young man, Lynn lived pretty independently. 
He called that morning to tell Dad about his Christmas celebration and the one gift he'd received. As I recall, an album on CD. When Dad finished the call, he hung up the phone and began to weep. He told us Lynn's story. In a sea of presents, shredded wrapping paper, and untied ribbons and bows, we sat in stunned silence. Finally, the tin cup lesson penetrated my heart, and I understood how incredibly unimportant what we receive is to having a truly good Christmas. If this story were fiction, I would say we wrapped up some presents for Lynn and raced over to his home to brighten his Christmas, but we didn't. Lynn remained a constant friend until Dad's job took us from Utah and is an important memory for us. If you know Lynn, and you'll recognize him in this story from 40 years ago if you do, give him a hug and a pat on the head for us. Devin Thorpe, a wonderful and kind man, and you can see how the lessons earlier in his life brought him to who he is today. Next up, we're bringing in Twim's very own co-founder, Al Doan, uh, with stories of leaner Christmases and the lessons they taught him. Jeff asked me to light the world, and so I single-handedly said, I will light this world and watch it burn. Um, no, he asked, me, he asked me to sort of reflect on a Christmas or a story of Christmas that uh, I have. As a kid, my family had just moved. We, uh, we actually left uh, the place we were growing up in California, we, we left there because we had some real financial trouble. My brother had some medical stuff happen and we had a bunch of bills pile up. And so we, we kind of lost everything, packed up what we, <laughs> what were our personal belongings into a nice big truck and moved to Oregon where my aunt lived. They had a basement there that they said we were welcome to use while we transitioned and figured out what we were going to do next. So we move into my aunt's basement. And uh, if you know Oregon, you know that it rains a lot, and these basements aren't super dry. <laughs> and uh, and so we had about six months of living up there, and it was kind of a disaster, man. Uh, I have these memories of like waking up in the middle of the night as rain would come seeping in from the walls and and starting to rise on the floor. We try to get all of our stuff up off the floor, all my baseball cards as a ten year old, twelve year old, just ruined the tears that flew from that but like we, it was just kind of this hard spot and we were in a tough spot um like my mom had come to all us kids and said hey we can't afford to pay all our bills if any of you can help and so like i went and worked with a landscaper part-time to make a little extra money and just gave it gave it to mom just to help pay bill you know it's like it's a lot of the the stuff you don't you know as a kid um I don't know, man. I, I can't imagine what my parents were going through to have to have those conversations with their children. Uh, and as a kid, I, I, you know, I just remember feeling so helpless. And as that Christmas approached, it was, it was interesting because we, so we had, we had this little, this little makeshift living room in a basement room uh, with a couch in there. And, uh, and I remember my, our mom telling all us kids that, Hey, this year, it's going to be different, right? We're, we don't have anything to give each other. In fact, we don't have room for anything to give each other anything. 
so so you know we're we're just gonna make it through this one and we'll get to the next one. And so we had we had changed all our expectations uh, <laughs> down to about nothing, um, hoping for maybe some candy and a stocking that we got from Deseret Industries when uh, we did a food order with the church. And um, the Christmas Eve, we we did, it was the first year we'd ever heard the Forgotten Carols by Michael McLean. And it was such a beautiful thing for seven kids to sit on a cement floor uh, and listen to mom read this story and, and play these songs and you know, like at first, if you've ever done these, they're, they're pretty goofy in the beginning. And you'll hear like homeless, you know, the song, and everybody starts kind of making fun of it. And then as the story goes on, you start to sort of listen and, uh, and hear the message that's in there. And it was just this really touching Christmas Eve. This, like our family's Swedish, we do big Christmassy things. And to have a, a night where it was just us, it was just us down there. And, uh, didn't have any big parties going on. Didn't, you know, we, we had a dinner and stuff, but like our Christmas Eve was not a festivity. It was a let's sit and, uh, and listen. And so then we went to bed and unbeknownst to us or my parents, actually at that point, um, the ward had gotten together and found or gathered a bunch of toys for us, a bunch of presents that weren't necessarily new, but they were new to us. It was like a slot car that had most of the pieces and, uh, you know, a bunch of, bunch of just like, just enough. It wasn't a ton, but it was enough to fill the tree. And we woke up that next morning and just had the magic of Christmas. Right. Just saw a tree filled with presents and, uh, the absolute joy and wonderment at, how could this have happened? And, you know, we, we knew, we knew Santa, we knew Santa wasn't, you know, all that he was cracked up to be. And so, but like, it was, it was a truly magical moment to wake up that Christmas morning and walk out to that. Uh, and, and honestly, man, I look around at, at, uh, you know, people around me and I, I want nothing more than to be able to give that gift to some kid. And uh, I wish that we had a more socially acceptable way of not hurting the pride of parents or, you know, like, and, and just being able to give and lift and donate and, su- and support in these great ways uh, where you could just find families and, and hug them the way that we were hugged that year. I'm just so glad that somebody noticed and said something because we weren't, we didn't have a handout. Um, somebody saw us and they made that Christmas amazing for us and like, let us really feel it. It was cool. I've known Al for a very long time now and stories like that continue to give me a lot of appreciation for one of my very best friends. Because while we have a lot of fun on this show, beneath all the bravado and inappropriate jokes, uh, there's a very sincere guy who is quite anxious to offer a leg up to anyone he can help. And I think that is something in the true spirit and meaning of Christmas. You know, ask yourself, who are you thinking of, just as the Doan family was thought of? Who's on your mind? Who can you lift? this holiday season. Now, speaking of lifting, our friend Kurt Frankham had an opportunity to don the regalia of one Santa Claus. So it's December 2014. I'm in my condominium living room. And it is literally filled with bags, boxes, bows, and bikes. I mean, wall-to-wall of presents, all wrapped, sparkling under the the Christmas tree. My three-year-old daughter is just so enamored by all the gifts, thinking, this is the best Christmas ever, and it's only my third Christmas. But I remind her again that these gifts aren't for you. You see, because I'm the bishop of the Lee Ward, and I'm the point man when it comes to all things sub for Santa. 
Now, suffer stand is a strange term. One I heard as a young boy sitting in different church meetings as they announced the sub for Santa efforts happening in the ward, and I just couldn't understand it. Why did Santa Claus need a sub, a substitute to go around for him to help with Christmas? This didn't make sense when we had such a magical, powerful being who could go around the world on Christmas Eve and deliver gifts to every young child in the world. Why did he need a sub for Santa. Well, several decades later, I figured that out because I was Santa's substitute. Standing in my condominium uh, or my living room in my in my condo, knowing that it was I was the point man. I was the person to deliver these gifts and that delivery happened. A few nights later after my uh, keeping my daughter away from every every uh, piece of wrapping paper hoping she wouldn't open it prematurely before these other kids would parents began to show up at my door with grateful hearts as I helped them load down the three flights of stairs their gifts that they had uh, they that they had prepared to give to their kids because we were in South Salt Lake a very inner city part of of the valley Many of these individuals lived in apartments that they didn't even know if they were going to pay rent, let alone cover Christmas. But we had them. We had so many donations come through from organizations, from individuals, in the ward, outside the ward. It was incredible to be the bishop who was able to bring in those donations and make sure that we had enough. And sometimes I wasn't sure if we'd have enough. Depending on the need of that was that I knew was there, do we have enough funds to cover to be the sub for Santa for all these families? But as I was loading down these presents, I knew we had done it. We had covered every request from every family that I was aware of in that area. But then the next Sunday, just a few days before Christmas, we had more donations coming through. People giving me hundreds of dollars, uh, gift cards, people, organizations donating, writing checks to the ward. That we now they look to me to make sure that this these funds were used before Christmas. But all the needs were filled. I thought, and so this caused me to go to my uh, bishop's office. Uh, on my knees, I prayed, thinking, what am I supposed to do with this money? Where can it go? How can I find more need? And then the Spirit whispered to me, go find it. And so a few days later, there I was, roaming the apartment complexes in my ward. I was knocking on doors, introducing myself, looking more like an FBI agent than Santa Claus, knocking on doors, asking people, introducing people, saying, I am the local Latter-day Saint bishop. I have funds available to help with Christmas. Do you know of anybody I could help? Now, it was remarkable to see some individuals with grateful hearts tell me, no, this has been a good year. We've been so blessed. We have Christmas. But there's one family across the way. If you could go visit them, I think they may need Christmas. I went across the way, knocked on the door. This humble father came to the door. I explained to, my, I explained to him who I am. Uh, that I'm not in the FBI, that I'm in fact a, a bishop that wants to help, and I have funds to help. And he was so grateful as he quickly uh, jolted around his apartment complex looking for a, a slip of paper where he could note a few items that his children needed. And I did that, and he did that. I took took the list along with several others I collected. I went back to the funds, back to the ward council, back to individual volunteers, and we covered the Christmas for those individuals. That Christmas in 2014 was so special to me because I truly felt like the sub for Santa. That I knew that it wasn't just the magic that, uh, that was unexplained and uh, that no one could understand that got Santa around the world in one night. It was actually the efforts of individuals, many subs for Santa, that, that were blessed with the opportunity to be the sub for Santa. And that was one of my favorite Christmases when I got to knock door to door dressed as a bishop, but truly being a sub for Santa. Kurt Frankham. Now let's get away from the uh, mountain west. That's how we call it, I believe, in Utah, mountain and have the pleasure 
of listening to the treasure of the words of one of my fellow District of Columbia denizens, Jared Gillins, uh, who has a great story about the importance of gratitude in receiving. In December 1996, I did my Eagle Scout project. It was a pretty run-of-the-mill sub-for-Santa operation, providing gifts, food, and some cash for three families in my stake in Kirkland, Washington. Though it was by no means original, it was everything an Eagle project was supposed to be. I learned about leadership, I found value in performing service, and I, I made a small difference in my community. It felt good to serve, and I remember the gratitude I felt radiating from the recipients. A year later, on a dark evening in December 1997, I answered a knock at the front door to find a box of gifts wrapped and tagged for me and my younger brother Mark. I brought them in, and together with our parents, we opened them. I still remember the presents vividly. A pair of stylish dress pants, slightly too small in the waist, a new paperback copy of Charles Fraser's Cold Mountain, and a Wynton Marsalis album on cassette tape. I also vividly remember how I felt. I was confused. The gifts were obviously tailored to me. Historical fiction, jazz, pants that were very close to my size. But I couldn't figure out why we were receiving them. We were obviously the recipients of a Sub for Santa project, but I didn't think we needed to be. Within a month, I would understand the kind of financial trouble my family was in. My dad's health had been steadily declining for over a year, and that summer he had stopped working and gone on long-term disability. Shortly after the turn of the new year, with medical bills multiplying and my dad's salary declining, my parents determined they could no longer afford our mortgage payments. We sold the home I grew up in, and we moved to a smaller place in another town. But until that box of presents arrived the week before Christmas, I didn't really comprehend our situation. My confusion morphed to embarrassment and anger. I felt ashamed. I, I put the pants on a hanger and shoved them to the back corner of the closet. The cassette tape disappeared into a drawer, and the paperback ended up on a low shelf. I didn't want direct line of sight to the heralds of my family's swiftly declining status. I celebrated the Christmas presents I received that year from my family, and I did my best to ignore the rest. I've spent some time recently looking back and trying to understand my 18-year-old self's feelings. I think I was upset by the shock of the revelation, and maybe I had a premonition that things were about to get worse. I also think that my anger was rooted in some fundamental misunderstanding. The Apostle Paul taught in Acts 20.35 that it is more blessed to give than to receive. The obvious, though horribly mistaken, conclusion I came to back then was that there must be something wrong with receiving. I wanted to be the person organizing the service project, not the poor recipient in need. The former seemed to me a blessed position, the latter not. Today I still feel a little shame, but it's for my immature reaction to generosity and kindness. In the 20 plus years since then, I would like to think that I've gained some wisdom and understanding. My favorite, current favorite explanation of what it means to be a covenant member of God's church comes from Mosiah 18, when Alma explains to the people about to be baptized what they're getting themselves into. Being God's people means that we are willing to bear one another's burdens, mourn with those that mourn, comfort those that stand in need of comfort, and to stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all things and in all places. I used to understand each of those listed items as separate things, but now I believe that Alma has repeated the same concept four different ways. Bearing is mourning, is comforting, is standing as a witness of God. And the further key to understanding this duty is to realize that if you are a part of this covenant group, you not only must be ready to bear burdens, sympathetically mourn, and give comfort, you must be prepared to receive all of these things when you need them. In this holy exchange, both giving and receiving our ways to stand as witnesses of God. Merry Christmas, twin listeners. Sorry that this turned into a little bit of a sermon, but I wanted also to give a Merry Christmas to the anonymous gifters of Christmas 1997. Please forgive me for not receiving well. You blessed me and my brother even though I wasn't ready to receive it. I am now. Jared Gillins. I love the common themes in some of those stories. You know, sub for Santa, receiving gifts, other individuals looking out for those who 
or perhaps less fortunate are going through lean times. You know, we see that a lot during the holidays, and we talk about it in our wards and with our families. And sometimes we perhaps lean on the ward apparatus to take care of it. You know, we have a giving tree. We have things along those lines, and that's valuable. But it also makes me wonder, what else can we do individually or as a family? What lessons can we teach our children about looking out for other individuals? I remember once when I was a young man, and this is not my main story, by the way, when I was tasked with uh, helping the bishop deliver Christmas goods to some of the families in need in the ward. And the thing for me is it took away the anonymity of the experience. I remember going to some of these people's houses to deliver them things, and I said, oh, I know these people. This is like my scout advisor. And the bishop trusted me to be a part of that and not to look down on anyone or, or help them feel like they were being ridiculed or or any kind of a project, but it gave me a great insight into the fact that there are those around us, many of whom we think we know, who are potentially in more need than even we realize. Moving back to the twin sisters, it wouldn't be complete if Ariane was not here to join us. And she tells us a moving tale about how loss both dominated the Christmas, but also brought her family together. There's one that stands out the most to me, and that was Christmas 10 years ago, Christmas of 2009. I was living just outside of Portland with my husband. Our oldest daughter was two and a half, and I was pregnant, eight months pregnant with our second daughter. Um, It was about two weeks before Christmas, and I got a call on a Friday morning from my stepmom, who lived in Idaho, where I grew up with my dad, saying that my dad had was sick and they had taken him to the hospital. Um, At first she said, you know, she thinks everything's okay. The doctors didn't seem that alarmed and she would keep us posted. So as the morning went on, she kept us posted. And um, a few hours later, she called back and said, you know what? I think you guys should come over to Idaho. It's not looking great. Um, She again said the doctors are, are, seemed to think everything's okay, but her gut feeling was that maybe we should just come um, just to see my dad, just in case she just, she wasn't sure what was going on. So she felt like we should come. So we quickly dropped everything, packed, loaded up the car, grabbed my daughter from preschool. My husband came home from work and um, we left for Idaho. And as we're driving on our way, The calls are getting more frantic from my stepmom saying, you really need to come. You really need to get here. So, of course, I am panicking. We are flying through the state of Oregon at lightning speed. We even got pulled over but did not get a ticket. The police officer had mercy on us. He saw the sobbing, hugely pregnant woman and the baby crying in the back seat, and he let us go, which I was so thankful for. Um, We arrived later that night at the hospital. Um, My dad was quickly quickly deteriorating. He had a blood clot um, and things were just quickly shutting down in his body and nobody seemed to know why. When I got there, he was still alert and we could still talk to him, but it was clear it was going downhill quickly. So within 24 hours after that, we got all of our siblings there from out of state in the hospital with my dad and we were able to be with him It very quickly got to the point where he had to be completely hooked up to machinery to survive, and we all had a very hard decision to make, but we knew he would not want to live like that. So we decided to let him go, and a few hours later, he passed away, completely surrounded by his kids and his wife, and it was peaceful, and it was an experience I will never forget. It was amazing and horrible at the same time. (laughs) Funny how that works. Um, Anyways, then we had the funeral a few days later. And within a week, I was back home in Oregon thinking, well, gosh, what just happened? (laughs) This was a huge loss for me. I mean, as it would be for most people. Um, My dad was not perfect, but he was a good dad. And we were really close. My mom passed away when I was younger. So me and my dad were tight. Um, 
So I remember getting back to Oregon and I had some really just thoughtful friends that had put a beautiful Christmas wreath on my door while we were gone. And I remember thinking, oh yeah, I guess it's time for Christmas now. This was about, you know, maybe 10 days, less than 10 days before Christmas uh, when we got back to Oregon. And I remember just thinking, I can't let it ruin Christmas. I can't let it ruin Christmas. Okay, so you're probably wondering why I decided to share about this Christmas, because it sounds like it was full of sorrow and loss and depression. And it was, it definitely was. But it was also a Christmas filled with hope and love and thankfulness for the Savior. I remember sitting in sacrament meeting exactly a week later after I lost my dad. And I remember singing the opening hymn, and I don't know what, it was one of the Christmas hymns. And I remember just losing it. And tears, crying. My husband probably was very concerned. And it was because I was feeling all of the things. I was feeling all of the sorrow, but also all of the joy at the same time and gratitude that the Savior was born. And that because He was born, He died and then was resurrected. And that just really took on a whole new meaning that year for me and my family. That was obviously a very quiet Christmas. um, And it little bit sad Christmas, but I also feel like I was kind of laser focused that Christmas on the things that really mattered and the birth of our Savior. And especially looking back at it now, I can just see how much God was with me through that time and how much I was able to see His hand and His blessings as my family went through that tough time. And I will just always remember that Christmas for that reason. And I still, every year, when we sing that first Christmas hymn in church on Sunday in December, get a little teary, um, which makes me laugh because we used to tease my dad because he would always get teary during Christmas hymns and uh, patriotic hymns. But I get a little teary, like a flood of emotions kind of comes back, lots of feelings, uh, happy and sad feelings come back. Um, And that's one thing I've definitely learned about grief. It kind of hits you at random, unexpected times, and it comes back. So I guess as I share this story, I just want our listeners to know that I recognize that holidays can be a time with all kinds of tender feelings and the whole spectrum of of feelings and emotions. And I understand that. I see you. I get it. Most importantly, God sees you, and He gets it, and He can be there for us. And that is just my hope and prayer for anybody that's going through that this Christmas season. And thank you for listening. And I hope you all have a wonderful Merry Christmas. And to you, Arianne, and thank you for sharing that with us. It's comforting to remember that there is a God who knows us and who wants to bless us and heal us, even in times of sorrow. So, as we wind down here, you probably want to hear a story from me, presumably so. Uh, And and as I've racked my brain uh, for meaningful content, especially as I've listened to the wonderful words of our co-hosts here on TWIM, and uh, anything I have pales in comparison to what they have to offer. So I'm going to share with you something a little bit more humorous, but something that's meaningful for me and my family. Sometimes I find myself envious of my friends who grew up in more small towns. Uh, you know, you get that classic Hallmark Channel vibe, all the, the Christmas cheer, everyone knows everybody, traditional values, all that fun stuff. And at the same time, I've envied those who have been in perhaps more urban environments, surrounded by culture and all the life that permeates a city during the Christmas season. Because I grew up in the suburbs, like many of us. You know, I grew up in uh, Southern California in Orange County, 30 miles southeast of Los Angeles. Life for me was a sea of primarily post-war tract homes. And sure, while there were various pockets of culture to be found anywhere that weren't just Disneyland, which was sort of our little country club in a way, I guess, it was still the suburbs. You know, going out to eat was going to Carl's Jr. And that was perhaps even more pronounced in the 1990s, when this story takes place, 1993, 
people clung to their fun suburban lives. And I, I, I described 1993, which was the year Jurassic Park came out, the year Bill Clinton started his presidency, um, the year Cheers ended, which mattered more to my parents, and the year Frasier began, which became far more enjoyable for me later on in my life. A lot happened in 93. And of course, in 1993, the American Mall was still the place to be. Mixed-use developments, boutique shopping centers, things hadn't taken over as much. We were still quite content to go to one massive building and walk around and do our Christmas shopping. E-commerce didn't exist at the time. AOL wasn't even in full swing back then. You couldn't even hear that great modem sound unless you were into Prodigy and BBSs and those sorts of things. So in 1993, we ventured up as usual to make our annual Hodge to the Brea Mall, which was really only about 10 minutes from my house. The Brea Mall is one of the largest malls in the Southland. It had five major anchor department stores. I think back then it was, what, JCPenney, Macy's, Robinson's, May, Sears, and probably Nordstrom. It had a lot. It was a big mall. It was the sort of mall where uh, during the Christmas season, you could easily circle the whole property and its environs for an hour just to find a parking space. Because that was the place to go. There was nowhere else to go. Best Buy wasn't even a thing then. You know, there was nowhere to go. You'd go to the mall. And since I was a bit older, I was 12, and my older sister was 15, we'd usually break off a little bit. Uh, my younger siblings would go with my parents, whichever one, my parents were divorced by then, and run along and, and do shopping. And my sister and I would go do our own thing, you know, secretively hide things in bags and try to be sneaky about Christmas. And I recall vividly, there was a store that specialized in calendars. I don't remember what it was called. I remember it was probably nestled between a, a coach store and a Sam Goody, something like that. But the store just had calendars. And who doesn't like nice calendars? I still appreciate a good calendar today. And we wanted to do some calendar shopping for our loved ones. Now, going back to the year, um, the 90s. MTV was real then, and I admit at that age, I would probably try to, to sneak it. It was forbidden in my household, but I would just kind of sneak it in and watch it. But there was one show I didn't really pay much attention to, probably because of the hour it was on, but, but I heard the cool kids talking about it, and that was the beloved program Beavis and Butthead. Uh, if you're not familiar with that, that beautiful bastion of 90s culture, it was a crudely animated cartoon show where two characters named Beavis and Butthead pretty much just watch TV and beat each other up and comment on music videos. It was very popular at the time. And my father also hated it. He didn't watch it. And I thought it was funny because my father was actually more of the crude, edgier, humored one of my two parents. But he was aware of it and he thought it was the trash of America. So... When Christmas time rolled around and we were at the calendar store, my sister and I, amongst our many legitimate gifts, found a Beavis and Butthead calendar. We looked at each other with joy and said, we have to get this for dad. This will be a hilarious joke gift. And we love joke gifts as a family. So we bought the calendar, hid it from view, wrapped it up. And then we fast forward to Christmas morning. We're hanging out with my dad. He opens gifts, lots of good, lovely things. I, and I remember none of them. But I do remember when he opened the Beavis and Butthead calendar. He was aghast, uh, bemused might be an expression. I think he saw the humor in it, but he also just kind of looked at us like, are you serious? This is what you're giving me? And I said, oh, yes, Father. This is a gift from me to you. I love you. That's how we say I love you in the Openshaw family. Now, I pretty much thought that was it. You know, enjoy your dumb gift, Dad. Hope you put it on your wall. So Christmas 1994 rolls around. And as I'm opening gifts and doing all the excited things that a 13-year-old boy does around Christmas, I open one gift, and what do I see but a perfectly shrink-wrapped 1994 Beavis and Butthead calendar. My father did not just re-gift he regifted a gift that couldn't even be used anymore because the entire calendar year was now behind us. We laughed about it. You know, he cracked up. It became this funny thing that he retroceded a gift to me that he hated, sort of as a joke. But also, it was done, I would say, 
with a little bit of guile in a way. <laughs> um, but it didn't really end there. So I decided it was upon me in 1995 to then give the calendar to another sibling, most likely. Still shrink-wrapped, never opened, never perused in any way. And thus began one of the strangest Openshaw family traditions where someone has the Beavis and Butthead calendar. And it's a tradition that we carry on to this day. And it's weird how things like that can be meaningful, but it's become almost something of a family heirloom. It has never been opened. It is still in its original packaging. And I, I swear if that shrink wrap were to tear, if we were to accidentally rifle through the pages, I'd feel like I had dropped a flag on the ground and it was irreplaceable and it was gone forever. Um, at this point, as our families have grown, as we've given it to parents, to step-parents, to in-laws, whoever it may be, it has become a big deal. And we've probably spent more money shipping it around because when we were kids, you know, we kept it in the house. But nowadays, we've probably spent more money shipping that calendar around than we ever paid to acquire it in the first place. I had it as recently as Christmas of last year, 2018, and I, I mailed it to my sister-in-law. And I was pleased to hear when she opened it, she exclaimed something along the lines of, is this that stupid calendar your family passes around? It's her first time, so we'll give her a pass. I know this isn't necessarily a spiritual story, but it's something that means a lot to me, that families have traditions. And hopefully your traditions are rooted in something either completely esoteric, something helping the community, whatever it might be. But as you build those traditions, they bring you together as a family. I hope we never open that calendar. I hope it just keeps getting passed around that blue cover with the terrible artwork that's worth nothing. By the way, I've checked eBay many times, but I do hope that in, I don't know, 30 years, I can sell it and pay for my grandchildren's college. To close, and you've heard plenty from me, I would like to bring it back to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to be serious about this for a second, if, if I may. For one, if you haven't seen that new nativity video, go watch it. It's wonderful. And in watching that video, it made me think a lot about the birth of the Savior. You know, we're familiar with many of the basic tenets of the story of the birth of Christ. Uh, the Roman Empire controlled Judea at the time. It was carrying out a general taxing and census of the empire. And so Joseph and Mary traveled to Bethlehem, of course, which is where uh, Joseph's family was from. Mary was pregnant, but not with Joseph's child. And I think sometimes we overlook this. We know a lot about the divine nature of Mary, but we know very little about Joseph. In fact, there's, he doesn't utter a single word in scripture that we're aware of, but we know he was a righteous man. Think of his faith. Under Jewish law, Joseph had two options when he learned of Mary's pregnancy. He could have either had Mary tried in public and condemned, possibly resulting in her death because she, as far as the people were concerned, she cheated on him. Or he could have privately severed his spousal contract with her. Joseph loved Mary. He didn't want to have her endure pain or torment. And we knew that Joseph struggled with this entire situation. And that's why an angel appeared to him and directed him to take Mary as his wife and to comfort him. I, I love the story of Christ-like love and compassion from the very man whose son Jesus was not. And it was only acting through love and mercy in the first place did Joseph receive that witness that his role was much more important than that of just a, a mere husband. And of course, we're familiar with a lot of the rest of the story of the birth in Bethlehem. But an interesting aside is we talk about the shepherds. They were not ordinary shepherds. In fact, under Jewish law, the only shepherding allowed near cities and towns was to raise animals for sacrifice. So these, these were shepherds raising animals that had to be perfect without blemish. 
I find so much extra symbolism there. The flocks of these shepherds were meant to be offered up as symbolism uh, for the very baby that now lied in their midst. And that has even other dualities because Jesus is simultaneously the Lamb of God and the Good Shepherd, the Lamb of God because he had offered up the final sacrifice of blood so that we may live, and the Good Shepherd because without his guidance and love, we'd be lost. There's something wonderful about that. Perhaps you've watched uh, A Christmas Carol this holiday season. We're all familiar with it, of course. Uh, Scrooge is visited by three different ghosts. He experiences what life would be like in different circumstances. And he looks outward and not inward for his joy. He finds that kindness, compassion, and generosity improve not just the lives of the people around him, but of his own. And when we read stories like A Christmas Carol, we routinely focus on the Christmas spirit, which I guess is described as a vague sense of charity, happiness, do-goodery, right? In fact, after the publication of A Christmas Story, local newspapers noted a sudden burst of charitable behavior in Britain. And that's awesome. It's awesome. And it's... At the same time, unfortunate that these selfless acts become popular because of piece of literature, not because of devotion to Christ, for example. You know, are we adequately commemorating Christ's birth year-round? It's great that we focus in in the Christmas season to help others. I hope we do. But I also hope we do it on January 1st. I hope I do. I hope all of us get that opportunity to remember that, as Christ said, love thy neighbor as thyself. There is no other commandment greater than these. That's the best bit right there. I'd like to thank everybody here uh, this week in Mormons for taking the time to produce these pieces. Uh, your time is valuable, and I appreciate you allowing me to pester you uh, with all of these, these requests. So we hope this has been useful, and I hope all of you have a wonderful Christmas, uh, that it's full of life and love, and that you're able to take some time and think about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and who I love greatly. We'll talk to you again next week. I'm Jeff Openshaw for Tiffany, Devin, Al, Kurt, Jared, and Ariane. Thank you very much for listening, and we all wish you a Merry Christmas.